Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Good morning, Awakening. Great to see you. My name's Ryan. For those who don't know me, uh, and I want to begin this morning just uh, with a little context for everyone. We are in a big historic season as a church. We're taking important faith-filled steps to increase our capacity to serve and reach more people. And yet I feel this tension inside that I want to speak to before we dive in. And the tension is for two types of people in this room. The first is if you're new or newer, meaning that you've been coming for the last few weeks, Uh, Or if you come from a background, maybe you don't come from the church, you have some thoughts about the church, uh, and you have some uh, assumptions about what church is about. So let me talk to the first group real quick. If you're new or newer, uh, and you might think about awakening because you've been here the last few weeks, all this church talks about is money. Yeah. That's one of my fears. Like, we are in a really important season, and it's critical that all of us are on the same page. And so for those of us who've been around, those of us who are engaged, those of us who call, you know, not only just awakening home, but you just go like, hey, I'm, I, I've been attending for the last three months. Like, this is the season where we're leaning in, but you're new. You're like, what is going on every single Sunday, these, these sort of things. So this isn't all we talk about. We are in, however, a very unique, important season, and this is a great time for you to hear some of the big things that God's put on our hearts. So we're so glad you're here. Uh, The second group is those maybe who have some assumptions about church. Maybe you have a background with church or no background at all, and so you think about church in a certain way, and you came in thinking this thought, that the church only wants my money. And then you're hearing where we're at Today And here's what I'd like to say to you, if that's where you're at, hang out with us, get to know us, and I believe so much in the principles and the power of generosity that I would ask you, if there's any sense where like, that's what they want out of me, do not give here in this season until you get to know us and really trust us and feel like, oh, that's not what awakening's about. I would encourage you, though, because how powerful generosity is, it releases our heart's grip of greed, that you would give somewhere, that, that you would engage. The story of Jeff and Felicia is so powerful, but, and you would engage with that and go, you know, maybe it's Compassion uh, International, maybe it's World Vision, maybe it's a local ministry uh, like Teen Challenge or something like that that I'm going to give to. And so that, those are those two tensions that I'm feeling because I want to step into this next, um, this next sermon right here and actually apply for us very specifically how Nehemiah and the series we're in connects to the season we're in. And so if you've been around, I've kind of set up the Above and Beyond campaign, and then we've taught the sermon. This week, I want to apply it one and the same, and so we needed to do a little bit of setup there, because this week we're talking about a strategic plan. We all have heard this, we know this, if you fail to plan, you plan to help me out. That was good. Just kidding. That wasn't good. If you fail to plan, you plan to 
Phil. That was Benjamin Franklin, by the way, that said it. Uh, Why is it that so many people intend to do so much, yet usually accomplish so little? Answer, good intentions. We have a lot of people, a lot of places that are filled with good intentions, yet accomplish very little. And yet there are those who carefully prepare even to do a little and accomplish so much. Answer why? They have a strategic plan. The question we're wrestling with this morning is what must happen to our dislocated heart, week one, that dependent spirit, week two, and a step of faith last week to turn a God-given vision or dream into reality. We must lean into and develop a strategic plan, both personally and corporately as a church. The reality is, is many people do not have a strategic plan for the things that matter most in their life. Many people don't have a strategic plan when it comes to their spirituality and their growth. They just think, hopefully it'll happen. If I just show up, hopefully something will happen. Many people don't have a strategic plan for how their lives are going to be leveraged and stewarded for the kingdom to make an impact, to make a difference. Have a strategic plan for significant relationships and friendships and marriage. Strategic plan for the kids. So how do we develop a strategic plan? This is where we are at in the life of Nehemiah. If you've been journeying with us, we've been studying the book Nehemiah about the character Nehemiah, who was a Persian ruling official who's Jewish who never lived in Jerusalem, but lived in Susa, the capital city of Persia, was cupbearer to the king. He was an affluent, influential businessman, if you will. And God began to get a hold of his heart about the people of God in Jerusalem and the place of God. And he began to have a broken, dislocated heart as he realized here he is in the lap of luxury, and yet the Jewish people in Jerusalem were in disgrace. The walls were torn down, and they're in great trouble. Last week we saw he steps before the king, a courageous moment, a step of faith, and beseeches the king and says, hey, would you let me go and make an impact? And he gets the favor of the king. And so now he's on this journey to Jerusalem. He's traveling with a whole posse. He has a big caravan. He has an army. He is now the new governor of Jerusalem. He shows up and he is the boss in charge. And he has letters from the king. And we pick up the story in Nehemiah 2, uh, verse 11. And a strategic plan is developed in private. It first begins, and we'll notice and we'll discover from his life, it begins in private. You have to investigate before you initiate. Chapter 2, verse 11 goes this way. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone. Sorry. Somebody get me some water. Seriously, I just had a... Thank you very much. Wow, that was quick. <laughs> I just had the. Uh, oh. Ooh, all right. We good? All right. I, am I good? <laughs> Verse 12. I set out during the night with a few others, circled that, a few others. I had not told anyone. It's italicized, but you can uh, underline it if you want. What my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. Verse 13. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, interesting name, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. He's confirming what he had heard. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but the devastation was so great, there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the walls. Finally, I turned back, re-entered the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing this work. Developing a strategic plan first begins in private. Investigate before you initiate. Now, if you're like me, the minute you get excited about something, you share it with everyone. Not everyone's like that. Uh, I'm much like my son in that way. My, my son, Miles, my youngest, the minute he finds out or has any inside information, he has to tell everyone. Just imagine Nehemiah coming into town. He's coming in with this large posse army around them. He's got papers from the king. This is a royal court official showing up to this little obscure city. And this is a big, big deal. And he shows up three days, says nothing. Everyone's wondering, why is this one here? What is going on? And he stays silent. Can you imagine just having something you're so excited? Like God put something on your heart. Like, I can't believe, I can't wait, I I just want to share it. And he waits, and he waits, and he says, I'm going to investigate first. Well, why in private? Well, in private gives us the opportunity to listen. Three days, he listened and listened. Before he had the answer, he listened. He listened to what was going on in people's lives. He listened to the struggles they were having. He listened and saw the devastation. One of the things that actually has the power to kill our God-given vision is when we share it before it's fully ready to be shared, before it's mature. People tend to kill dreams with how. You share like, man, God's given us this vision. Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to raise $1.5 million? How are you going to do this? How, 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 how? By the way, what would change if we shifted when people respond and tell us something that God's placed on their heart instead of kill it with how, we responded with wow. Like, wow. And inside we can have all the hows and like, it's not the time yet. Parents, for those of us who are parents, we do this, don't we? And our kids come excited with something and they come to share it and you go, well, how? And maybe for some of you who are college or young adults and God began to birth and stir a vision with you and some significant mentor in your life killed it with how? Why in private? Well, because people tend to kill dreams with how instead of wow. And then I had you circle a few others. Get a few trusted counselors. The scripture Proverbs says, in the abundance of counselors, uh, victory is assured. But pa- plans fell for lack of counsel. Now, here's the problem 
with how we go about getting counsel, wise counsel today. The natural tendency, the abundance of counselors. Well, I should have a lot of people. And so then we begin to ask and invite input from everyone around us. I would argue, and what I see with among this generation, is you have too many people giving you input on things. And instead of, remember it just said, a few others. You have a broad spectrum of people that is giving you input and you get stuck, you get paralyzed, you become confused because you're getting different voices saying different things. Instead of having people who have incredible insight, knowledge, and an informed advice, we simply get other people's opinion. And so we listen and we go, okay, let's get some people in our lives that are trusted, mature, have experience in this, that, that can give an informed advice. Why listen? Well, take time to listen to the Spirit of God. Um, I have a buddy, and he said it this way, you pray with insight uh, when you pray on sight. God may have stirred a heart for something in your life, and the minute you get boots on the ground, Take time. Don't rush in. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. In fact, we've spent a couple years as awakening, listening, asking, seeking, searching, getting wise counsel, both from within our church, going to other churches who have done this, and other key leaders on this time. And as a result, we've had then wine private time to assess, to examine the walls. Notice, he examined the walls of Jerusalem. It says it two times in there, that he's going around. He heard about the problem. He understood what was going on from afar, but now it's different when you're walking around it and seeing exactly what's going on, right? All of a sudden, you see it. It's one thing to hear about problems on the other side of the world. It's another thing to smell the stench and to see the brokenness and pain and heartache. We begin to ask questions when we assess, so what's the real issue going on here? Where uh, will we need the most work? Hey, this area is going to be really a big problem. How long will it take? What's the best course of action? It gives you time to assess and understand what's really going on. Opportunity to listen, time to assess, and then finally space to strategize. To get a game plan. We share visions often to premature because and because we don't have a plan a strategy in place before we jump into the work ahead once you go public with the vision and start the work you no longer have space to strategize you are now in the executing phase and reacting to the problems around you not strategizing and planning the course out this is where we have been much uh, in the last six months, especially in the life of our church. We have been strategizing, planning. It's been a quiet phase. It's been with leadership working through. This is the moments where we've been sharing it as a church. And what I want to share with you is how you can begin to plan and process and strategize in joining with us in the Above and Beyond campaign. Would you develop a strategic plan for this campaign 
in private of how God wants to use you and partner with us as we journey to see, okay, God, let's dream together and see what, if we all come together, what you might do. And so for the last number of weeks, I've been at tons of small groups around. I've actually shared this with all the groups, and I want to share it with everyone now. It's what I'm calling four words to guide our process, four words that are strategic for us in learning and how to think about, okay, how are we going to engage in this? process of above and beyond. And so if you got your Bibles, we're going to jump over to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and a little background or context. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. It, it, Corinth is this incredibly wealthy, affluent, influential port city. Uh, right on, it's one of those places where you just, it's a spiritual hub, it's a trade hub. Um, people come from all over the world, and it's, and it's very um, free in their living and wild in many ways. And the Apostle Paul is writing to this church, helping them learn how to follow out the good intentions that they had uh, when it comes to generosity here in chapter 8. If you think about the church in Corinth, think about it like San Francisco, if you will. This incredibly influential city. It, 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 maybe the church in Corinth is maybe the hipster um, city church, if you will. And he's writing to them, and what he wants to do is help them understand how to move from good intentions to a strategic plan to follow through on what they already committed to in being generous. Chapter 8, verse 1, we pick it up. It says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. So so he's going to give them um, a little bit positive peer pressure, an example, if you will. And he says, in the midst of their very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Wow, what great line in this juxtaposition of terms. Notice this. This is powerful. Don't miss this. In the midst of their, what, severe trial, notice their overflowing joy. Like the severity of your trial doesn't have the ability or power to push out your joy. Because circumstances don't determine your joy, Jesus does. Our circumstances, our what's in life, don't have the power to push out your joy. We get our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so what he's saying is you can be going through hell and still experience the joy of Christ that you're in that moment. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean that it's not a struggle. Doesn't mean that you just don't go, man, I'm grieving. But Paul would say we grieve as those those who don't have hope. We grieve with hope because we have Jesus. Their extreme, and then it goes on, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Notice that. Extremely poor, rich in generosity. Means that you can be extremely poor and extremely generous. Generosity is not contingent upon what you have. Generosity is contingent upon entrusting God with all that you have. 
Generosity is not about the size, it's about the sacrifice. It's about the widow's might saying, God, here you go. Here I have all of it. God doesn't go, well, that person can give a lot and that person can give a little. little. He looks at it and says, by the way, you can be extremely poor, college student. You can be extremely poor just getting out your first job. You can be extremely poor because the housing in this area is so crazy and yet you can still be rich in generosity because it has more to do with your heart condition and trusting God than anything else. And this is why Jesus talks about generosity. And he says, and remember, we've quoted this, you know, I, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But God doesn't, he doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. The work of generosity of, in our lives is for our hearts to get so connected to his and that we learn to trust him with all that we have. And so he goes on. He says, entirely on their own, oh, verse 3, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. What a cool thing to say about a church. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Like, we want to be a part of it. You know, we don't have a lot, and I, I, probably what we're going to give is barely going to make a drop in the bucket, but we just want to be a part of it. Would it be amazing that you would let us get to be a part of that and partner with what God's doing? And so then the rest of chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about how he's sending Tim, Titus to receive the collection. Chapter 9, then he's going to help the Corinthian church uh, understand this principle of generosity by, by reminding them of the laws of generosity or the laws of harvest. And here's why. Think about this. When we don't have a lot, it's easy to trust God with all that we got. Think about the Macedonian church. If the, if the church in court is kind of like the San Francisco church, the Macedonian church is kind of like, the, like an inner city Oakland church. It's like, hey, we don't have a lot, but it's easier to trust God with all you got. Why? Because you're praying to God to supply your every need. You're like, already I'm trusting God. And the subtle shift is when you get that big girl, big boy paycheck, when you begin to start to get those stocks from the company, when, when you start to have a 401k and you diversify your investments and your savings begins to grow and, and you're looking at, well, now I got a house, what subtly shifts is then we start to trust what we got instead of God. See, when we get a lot, we begin to trust what we got. It becomes our safety blanket, our security net to be financially what? secure, instead of secure in the hands of God. And that's what he wants to shift them. Verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He's reminding them of the laws of the harvest. We're disconnected to that, especially in Silicon Valley, right? We, we don't live by the laws of the harvest. We live by the laws of Amazon, um, Prime, Instant, in fact, the undershirt, this is probably too much information that I'm wearing, um, took six days to get to my house. Six days. Can you believe it? I was so frustrated and angry. Should be three days or less, Amazon. <laughs> Apparently, it wasn't prime. And that's our world that we live in, instant, immediate. The laws of the harvest says whatever you sow, that you shall reap. You sow as much, or you reap as much as you sow. Laws of a harvest say this, you never reap in the same season that you sow either. 
Like you sow today and you sow and you produce a harvest and a fruit another day. That it is this long process that God is working in us and through us. It says then, each of you then should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Generosity is strategic. Generosity is pre-planned. And this is why I'm giving you this two weeks in advance to decide in your heart to give. Now, how do you give? Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not some big heart plea and come as you are and open up your wallets. That's evil. That's not from Jesus. And not reluctantly, like, I know I ought to do this, but I don't really want to. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. The Macedonian church, a hellacious giver. Like, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. And then notice this incredible promise of God for those who are generous. This is a promise, not for everyone, but for those who live generously. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Like generosity positions you for the good work that God has for you. Why? Because it releases your grip of greed and stuff on your own heart. You begin to trust him with all that you have, and your eyes are open wide to the world around you and his heart for what's going on. He says, I'm going to position you and place you. I'll supply your every need, not your every greed, and I'm going to use you in a powerful and mighty way. This, by the way, is not health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Paul does not teach that. Sow a seed and you get $1,000 or or your business is going to be the most successful thing on the planet. Notice what he says in chapter or verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your, say this word with me, righteousness. Let's try it one more time. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, who supplies the seed? God and bread for the Food will also increase the store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your, say it with me, righteousness. righteousness. See, I don't know what you would want to fill that blank in. Enlarge the harvest of, enlarge the harvest of my, you know, bank account. Enlarge the harvest of my influence, of my business success, of my ability. I don't know what you'd fill that in. God's aim for your life, friends. His aim is to produce Christ-likeness in you. His desire, he says, the righteousness, like his desire is that you flourish. Flourishing isn't the American dream. Flourishing is when you are looking more and more like Jesus. Then you can say like the Macedonian church, severe trial, overflowing joy. Extremely poor, rich in generosity. Why? Because I'm rightly related to my God and rightly related then to the world around me. That's righteousness. That's righteousness. And you begin to flourish. And that is his aim and goal, what he wants to produce in you in this season. And he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving 
to God. In fact, there's people who started this church who gave sacrificially and generously. And your life, some of you in this room, has been changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus in this community. And you give thanks for people you'll never meet or never know because of their generosity. And that's the season we're stepping into as a church that we then get to play that role once more for those that will come later on that will maybe never ever get to meet who God changes their life and give thanks for you. So four words to guide our process. The first word is the word sacrifice. First word is the word sacrifice. Notice that the Macedonian church, they gave, you know, to their ability and then even beyond their ability, they sacrificially gave. To sacrifice means that you have to sacrifice something. Means I'm saying no to something so that I can say yes to being a part of this over here. I sacrificially give. I just wrote down a few things that perhaps you might think about sacrificially giving up. Now, the first one is very personal to me, coffee. I love coffee. I drink it every day, multiple cups. I go to Pete's often. I buy the cheapest coffee I can buy at Pete's, although not quite because it's a medium, not a, not a small. Tall and uh, grande is for you Starbucks people. Medium. It's $2.75. That's crazy for a, a, a black cup of coffee. When it says, well, it's sacrificial. Maybe it's eating out. Maybe it's going to the movies. Maybe there's some subscriptions that are automatically drawn on your account. For some, it's vacations or remodels. Uh, for others, it's, it's going, you know what? We've been dreaming of buying a house, and we're going to delay it to participate in this. Sacrifice. And the other word, the counterbalance to this, then, is of joy. Notice that. For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver, full of joy. And here's where we tend to land, depending on your background. Maybe you have a high responsibility gene. Maybe you grew up in a legalistic background. And so you're all sacrifice. All sacrifice with no joy. Joy is always, you get back to the why behind the what. Sacrifice with no joy produces bitterness. It it produces, it's like, I have to, I ought to. That's compulsion, reluctant, and it'll produce a bitterness of heart. On the other side, joy with no sacrifice, you miss out on the blessing. You miss out on what God's doing. And some of you are all joy. There's no sacrifice in your life. It's all joy, but you're missing out on what God's wanting to do in you. He's like wanting to produce the righteousness of Christ in you, and you're missing out on the blessing of other people being able to give thanks for you. And so what does it look like? Here's the question I want you to ask. What does it look like to sacrificially give with joy? I want you to wrestle with that for the next two weeks. What does it look like to sacrificially give with joy? God, what would you have me sacrifice for the next two years? Oh, wow. So that I can participate in what you're doing here, and I want to do it with joy. You know, in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, I think what happens is we're often blind to our own excess. We say things like this, I just don't have the finances, It's just so tight right now. I'm just a broke college student. Um, By the way, college students, we keep using that line. I'm just a broke, and we we just graduated up, and you graduate college. I'm just a broke young professional. Uh, uh, I'm just a broke, you know, married person. I'm just a broke. We're family. We're trying to scrape by. 
And the reality is, is we're often blind to our own excess and how we spend and utilize. And we have unthinkingly use our money and we get an opportunity to leverage it. Let me give you just this example of, it's a giving guide here. And and I think I want to just call out our college students. We've got a lot in this group. Because for me, I don't want you to miss out on this. This is an opportunity for God to grow you, grow your heart, grow your generosity, grow your faith. And this will be one of the biggest stepping points in your college career if you begin to go, God, I'm going to start to trust you with what I got. And I'm going to do that. And then just like uh, the, the story of Jeff and Felicia, it begins to impact your life for a lifetime. Now, $1,000 over the course of two years, if you go, that equals $42 a month. Some of you are like, well, $42 a month is a lot of money. Do you know what that breaks down to a day? A buck 37. College students, your third wave coffee costs more than that. No shame in the game. I love it too. But if you would begin to go, I can do that. And I get to play a part, and I get to be an integral role, and and what I do matters. $5,000. Think about this. Because that seems like an enormous amount of money, and it is, over the course of two years. Do you know what that breaks down just to a day? $6.84. For some, that is simply your cafe mocha latte Every single day. And where we would begin to go, okay, what does it look like to sacrificially give with joy? And I want to be a part, urgently pleading to be a part. The third word, then, is of faith. This is what God wants to do in you. He wants to grow your faith. Faith is like a muscle to be developed. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. And he wants to produce and develop in you and me faith as we step out and trust him. Last week we talked about faith. That was the the sermon. Faith is the confidence that God is who he said he is, and he'll do what he said he'll do. Faith is trusting that God, the character of God, and then the promises of God. Notice the promise of God, and God is able to do uh, measurably more than all you ask or um, need in all times, at all circumstances, so that you'll be able to do or abound in every good work. Ask the question, what does it look like? How do I give by faith? Now, let me tell you the process my wife and I have been on in, in throughout this journey. So we've had a longer time, and these four words have really guided us. We looked at the first one, sacrifice and joy. What does it look like for us to sacrificially give? And we said, okay, God, we're praying, and we saw it, and then we came up with a number. And we're like, okay, this would be sacrificial on our part. This would be saying no to some dreams that we've been saving up for and delaying. We said, okay, we came up with a number. And then we began to ask this question, but does it require faith? And the answer for us was no. And the reason is, is because of the fourth word, faith and wisdom. Wisdom. And we talked about last week that faith is not in apposition or opposite of wisdom, that God works with both. And for, for our family, by God's grace, we've applied biblical principles. We tithe, we do that. We have zero debt. We have savings. And so the reason it didn't require any faith is the number, though sacrificial, I could write that check tomorrow. In fact, I already did it this last week. 
It didn't require faith because I'm not trusting him for something. It required sacrifice on our part. And so we prayed and we wrestled. Now I want you to hear this. I'm telling you our process as an example, not a template. I'm not saying this is what everyone needs to do. I'm asking you to wrestle with these questions. And so we came, what would require faith of us? And we said, okay, we're going to double that number. We're going to write the check, or literally I did it online, trusting that I can do it again next year at this time. See, faith and wisdom, the question is this. How do you give by faith tempered with wisdom? And where we would step out and begin to experience the God who is able But we don't experience the God who's able because we're constantly trusting in our own ability, not his. So for the next two weeks, would you join with us and develop a strategic plan for this process? Would you ask these questions? Would you do it, you know, in private together? So Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah. That was a long way away from Nehemiah. He developed a strategic plan in private. And then he shared his strategic plan in public. You got to go public. That's what we've been doing with this series and this time. And for some, this is where you've gotten stuck, where God's placed some things. You've prayed, you've planned, but you've never quite gone public with it before because you've been afraid, you know, if someone's going to go, how, how, how? And you're like, I can't handle that. Um, Last weekend, my wife was gone for the entire weekend. It was one of her best friend's 40th birthday. And so from Friday to Monday, she was gone. And so it was me and the three kids, and we had a blast. It's awesome. I love the time when we just hang out. And we do some things, you know, that only dads get away with. um, Because mom, when mom's there, she wouldn't, you know. Anyways, movies and food and all those sort of things that are a lot of fun. However, Monday came, and mom's coming home that evening and the house is a disaster. And we're wrestling, you know, we're in this moment and going, okay, I know that if she comes home and she comes to this house, it will stress her out and it will wipe away all the good that happened that weekend. So me and the kids, we're just cleaning feverishly, getting everything ready. And you know what I kept saying? Teamwork. And then my kids would yell back, makes the dream work. I know we're a nerdy family, but we have so much fun. And so we're like, got music blasting, and we're all like, teamwork. Oh, yeah, you, you can join my family too. Why? Because the bigger the dream, the more important the team. You got to share your strategic plan in public. Notice what Nehemiah does, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, circle the word we, he identifies, it's not you are in, we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruin and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. Verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. Well, when you share your plan in public, what do you share? Notice Nehemiah first defined the problem. What is wrong? Nehemiah states the obvious because when we're living in uh, like the broken walls of our life, we become unaware the longer we live with the problem. We become apathetic and we assume this is the way it always will be. And he says, look, don't you see the trouble we're in? Do you see it? 
Like, like look around. The big problem is these walls are completely torn down. There's no protection for us to flourish as a people. We define the problem at awakening as we're actually running out of space by God's grace. How cool is that? We're not guaranteed space here. It's a constant battle. We have so much effort and energy going into setting up and tearing down. And it's incredible the amount of people that God uses to make this happen every single week. And just imagine if we're able to leverage all that energy for the kingdom's sake outside our doors. It's the problem. Well, then he goes on to outline the solution. Well, how do we fix it? Nehemiah's uh, solution was simple. You notice that? Um, The walls are burned down. Uh, Everything's broken. Let's rebuild it. Like, he doesn't get overly complicated in it. The solution was very simple. Doesn't mean it won't be difficult. Doesn't mean it's not important. Doesn't mean it's not significant. He says, but here's the solution. Let's rebuild the wall. Here's the solution. We need a building so that we can do what we have not been able to do as a community and steward the vision in ways that we've never been able to, that we can refocus our energy and have a strategic training center to raise up the next generation of leaders and invite the community and reach out and do local and global compassions in a greater capacity. Let us rebuild the wall. But then notice he doesn't just define the problem or give the solution. He gives the motivation. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king said to me. So good. See, we want to be at the core. We want to be part of something that God's a part of, don't we? we? We don't just want to be a part of a good idea. We want to be a part of a God idea. We want to be a part of a movement where God is blowing and working and moving. I love what Henry Blackaby said, and he, he wrote this. He said, find out where God is at work and join him there. Like Nehemiah told him about how God had already worked. It, it was motivational, inspiring. Listen, I showed up. I showed up. And let me tell you why I showed up in the favor of the hand of my God that has gone with me. And so he'll continue to go with us. It's exciting as we step out on this journey. And it's often overwhelming as a leader and scary. This is a step of faith for not only our church, but for me. And to let me tell you how God is at work. I mean, one of the exciting parts, you go, okay, it's great to have full rooms. That's amazing. But God is reaching and connecting, and lives are being changed. We're watching people come to know Christ consistently. I, I, let me tell you about all the groups that I visit and seen, the spiritual fervor in our church, and that we don't just have communities that are, you know, just looking for a place to hang out. We have people who are hungry and passionate for the Word of God. How amazing in the heart of one of the most godless places in the country we see God flourishing a community. Let me tell you how it's God at work. We have a big size dream when I believe leaders go first. We've asked our leadership council and our staff to go first. And already to this point, we have given and pledged $223,000 as a leadership to find the problem, outline the solution. Then he gives us motivation. I invite you, November 11th is where we're saying publicly as a church, we're, we're going together. Let us start rebuilding. 
Would you take the next two weeks? In fact, there's those giving cards and would you take one of those, like the pledge cards, maybe, and just hold it for the next two weeks and begin to ask those questions. What does it look like to sacrificially give with joy? And how do I do that with faith and pray and come prepared on the 11th of, man, teamwork makes the dream work. It's going to take all of us together. And then finally, it's not enough to plan in private or to go public. When implementing a strategic plan, expect opposition. Expect it. I think it's so funny when we step out to do big things for God and we're shocked when we get opposition. Really? Oh my gosh, I can't believe. Expect pushback, expect critics, expect naysayers. As the prophet T. Swift said, hate is going to hate, 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 hate. Shake it off. Shake it off. Notice verse 19, but when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They ask. Are you rebelling against the king? Notice that charge is this accusation is something that the king had already put a, a stop to years prior. He says, no, no, we're not rebelling against the king. That mocked and ridiculed, this is, this is all many of you need to retreat from the dreams God's given you. Someone says, no, that can't be done. Oh, you're crazy. This, what is your doing? It's the parental shame question. We, we got as kids, and maybe you repeat, repeat in your mind. Parents, we unfortunately say something like this. What were you thinking? It fills you with shame and guilt. When implementing a strategic plan, expect opposition. And we'll actually, our final week, we're going to unpack how do we respond to opposition and a courageous soul that's needed. But for the meantime, let's sit with verse 20. And I answered them, saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. The God of heaven will give us success. He didn't respond. He could have said, I got papers from the king. Who are you? I'm a court official. I got an army. Hello. You know what he said? I got God confidence. Not self-confidence. I have God confidence. Because what God has put on my heart isn't just my nice idea. This is a God idea, and I am moving forward with that. The God of heaven, as we step out to awaken this generation to new life, will give us success. It's more than a dream. It's a God-infused vision. Would you stand as we close? Let me pray for you. As we step forward together in this strategic season in the life of our church. Heavenly Father, this sermon probably hit people in so many different ways, but I know one of the things that's going on is a wrestling. A struggle and a tug in our hearts of, man, what does it look like to trust you and how how will we do this and 
God, I, I pray for my friends that you would give them the Spirit-filled wisdom to know what to do. That you would speak clearly. Your voice would be strong. And then, Father, we ask, we ask that you would give us the courage to do it no matter how hard it is. And we pray. We pray for our city. We pray for our country. We pray for this world. Your kingdom come and your will be done. In Silicon Valley, in San Jose, in Campbell, in Palo Alto, in Morgan Hill, and wherever you're from, would your will be done on this planet? God, we pray for every college campus represented, every workplace represented, that your will would be done and you would bring about a collective community whose hearts are burning for you, that we would move together to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.